0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the IssaCos Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Lyman, here for another episode. And today we have another guest on the show, which is uh, Dr. Daphne Ling, who is a sports medicine epidemiologist uh, doing some pretty interesting work. And we're going to talk to her a little bit about her career and Uh, what she's working on and how ISACOS can get involved. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ling. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Stephen. Really happy to be here and talking to you again.
0: So Daphne, you and I met, I guess, at this point, more than five years ago. Is that right? You actually interviewed for a position at the Hospital for Special Surgery, and I was uh, a member of the, uh, I guess, the recruitment committee for a position in sports medicine epidemiology. So, can you talk a little bit about how you became an epidemiologist, and then what led you to sports medicine?
1: Uh, that's right, Stephen. I uh, we we did talk more, and it's been more than five years. Amazingly, uh, it was um, 2016, I believe, when I first applied for the position at HSS, and then we spoke in that spring and summer, and then I joined HSS that fall, thanks to you and some of the surgeons in the sports medicine service at HSS. Uh, As I kind of mentioned in my interview and I had to plead my case that I was a really well-trained epidemiologist but I wanted to change my career path from working on more typical public health epi areas such as TB, HIV, STIs to sports medicine. And it was really due to kind of a lifelong interest in sports that I didn't realize that I could apply to my career until 2015 when Canada hosted the Women's World Cup. And I was in Vancouver at the time doing a postdoc. And I decided after reading an article actually in the New York Times about soccer statistics that I decided to make this change. And I didn't really know if this sort of job existed being a sports epidemiologist, but I went on Google, found the job posting at HSS, and sent in my uh, cover letter and CV. And luckily it it, it hit your desk and we had a really nice conversation over the phone. And I think it kind of mirrors a bit your own path as an epidemiologist doing something different and coming to HSS working on uh, sports and arthroplasty. So it's been um, an amazing ride. um, And I hope to continue, especially with this study and some of the other things that I'm uh, working on.
0: It's true. I, I also uh, was trained as an epidemiologist. I think we're a rare breed in uh, in the sports medicine universe. Uh, I I realized I could study injuries uh, while I was still in in graduate school, so I did uh, focus my training a little bit on injury epidemiology. Uh, but I had always I wanted to do sports. That was that was really the end goal. But I thought I'd get the injury training first because that's the coursework that course was available. That But for example, my uh, first publication and injury research was actually agricultural injuries in farmers in Alabama. Uh, Very, very different from what I do today. But um, now for you, can you maybe, since our listeners are primarily sports medicine surgeons, can you talk a little bit about what training as an epidemiologist is like? What is, what kind of skills do you develop and, and, And what kinds of career options are available to an epidemiologist?
1: I think the COVID epidemic, or the pandemic rather, has really given our field great advertising. I don't think we could have asked for anything more. In fact, when I first took intro to Epi, I was a a junior at UC Berkeley. And the lecture hall was about 200 students. And this was spring 2003. And so at that time, Asia was dealing with the SARS epidemic. And we thought that was a really big deal. And then fast forward, not even 20 years later, and here we are, this is a historic pandemic, probably once in a lifetime, once in a century. And finally, people know what we do. Uh, You know, they can uh, spell epidemiology, they can pronounce epidemiology, uh, and we're now seen as experts. There there, There have been several articles in the New York Times where they ask experts about their opinions on how long we have to wear masks, um, whether or not to get the vaccine, who should be first in line to get the vaccine. So it's it's been really nice to see, and I'm uh, really looking forward to the next generation of aspiring epidemiologists to join our field. Um, now when I first took Intro to Epi, I had been a, uh, a bio major at the time, and we were studying populations of cells and, and atoms, you know, in chemistry class. And I just wasn't really interested. And so when I took intro to epi, that kind of opened a whole new world for me that you could study populations of humans, of people, kind of in the same way we were studying cells you know, in a Petri dish in the lab. And I believe what we do is we make, we have quantitative training. So we're trained um, uh, along with a lot of biostatisticians to analyze data for trends and patterns that uh, and these, Trends and patterns are things that may contribute to morbidity, mortality, or even good health. I think we need to start thinking about studying why some people are healthier and they don't get lung cancer when they've smoked a pack a day. Uh, It could be genetic, it could be anything. Maybe they are doing other things to kind of um, cancel the effects of their smoking habits. Um, And so what evidence we provide as epidemiologists they are being used for public health policies. And we see that with COVID now, that policies in public health are also about life and death. It's not just medicine where the doctor saves one life. We're doing things on a very grand scale. And I think the slogan for Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is saving lives millions at a time. And that's what a public health professional does. and there's no better timing, I think, to promote our field than
0: now. That's a great point. I think for most of my career, when I would tell people that I was a sports medicine epidemiologist or an orthopedic epidemiologist, which is how I've typically introduced myself, uh, they would be confused because, and I guess this still happens because they think that I studied infections in athletes, uh, uh, which, which is not exactly what I do as somebody who's a clinical epidemiologist. I study uh Treatment outcomes, right? Which which uh, treatment is going to get the athlete back to health, uh, back to back to performance? Uh, but I, th- I guess we still have that challenge. And that epidemiology is really a it's a toolbox of of methods for research in humans that can be used to study any number of of uh, diseases or uh, and as you mentioned health, right? We could we could study what makes people healthier, what are healthy behaviors rather than what, what are the things that cause harm. Uh, so r- really interesting. And now you've, as you transitioned from classic epidemiology, which would be infectious disease epidemiology to sports medicine epidemiology, what's that journey been like? What are some of, I guess, what are some areas you've researched? What have been some of the unexpected challenges? Uh, and, you know, sort of what, what has that experience been for you?
1: I felt like when I joined HSS that I was doing a postdoc all over again because the field of sports medicine was completely new to me. And being an epidemiologist, I had to learn the field and then also know what questions were meaningful. And that's often a partnership between the methodologist and the clinician. But in the end, and maybe five years later, I find that in orthopedic research, there are really three major questions. And that first question is, who needs surgery? And the second question, if they need surgery, what type of surgery? And then third question is who fails surgery? So I would say my whole research program is really focused on using more advanced methodologies to address these three questions. And the first question about uh, who needs surgery, and the last question about who fails surgery, they're really actually easier to answer than the second question of what type of surgery. Because when it comes to the type of surgery, and I think everyone would want the surgeon to know exactly what procedure they're doing in the operating room. Um, that question of what type of surgery usually is not a choice, and so there's a, a, um, a major example of, of an epi term called confounding by indication, where your clinical profile tells the surgeon, surgeon what procedure to perform, but it, it is possible to try to find the best type of surgery when there is a choice, and although I haven't done it yet, this is certainly a goal of mine, and it has to, um, we have to be, uh, what needs to be available is the right type of data to answer this um, sort of research question. So, a few areas where I think it could be applied um, is comparing reverse and total shoulder arthroplasty, mm-hmm. and also possibly uh, comparing something like for patella femoral, the MPFL versus. Uh, MPFL plus TTO. So the medial patellofemoral lim- ligament reconstruction versus perhaps something that will um, address the, the, the bony issues that some patients may have coming in.
0: You're starting to think like a clinician. I like it. The... Well,
1: <laughs> I'm trying to uh, be like you where people are saying you're speaking like a surgeon. So I don't think I'm quite there yet, but one day, one day, maybe in 10 years.
0: let's hope it doesn't take that long um so something you said struck me and i think you're right one of the challenges is which treatment is what best for which patient patient it's not necessarily that surgery a is better than b surgery a might be better for this patient and surgery b might be better for that patient uh which does reflect a little bit the confounding by indication which you mentioned but i i was actually struck this actually it's topical but a little far afield from sports medicine but I, I review for JBJS and a few years ago I was on the I was actually the chairman of the data safety monitoring board for a large international trial of hip fracture treatment and it was total hip arthroplasty versus hemiarthroplasty. Uh, and obviously uh, hip fracture is not really part of what ISICOS does but I think the story is relevant uh, this paper was submitted to JBJS and it was a large retrospective cohort study of these two treatments. But I had, I had been the chairman of a randomized trial, international trial, it was done in multiple countries. I'm sure enormous amounts of money were spent by the US government, by the Canadian government to get this trial finished. And yet here we were three, four years later and a retrospective cohort study was being submitted on the same question because the trial was not able to define who would benefit from which of those two treatments. And it's, it's, it's I think, a constant challenge. And um, I think you're right, I think that is the most difficult of those three questions for us to answer as epidemiologists. So I just, I was struck by that as you uh, mentioned mentioned that challenge.
1: That's interesting. And, and I think it's our job as trained epidemiologists to is to inform people that perhaps the evidence, uh, it can be inconsistent. And that the message is not always clear and it takes time as we've seen with COVID. There's a lot of conflicting evidence and and it's very understandable that the public is uh, confused at times, but it's more the totality. And we have to be humble when there is no clear answer. And it requires really a team effort on the part of all researchers to conduct good research and get their findings out there and for this discussion to take place. Um, We've we've seen a lot of examples that we've learned in the classroom when observational studies like cohort studies and RCTs, which are considered the gold standard, when that evidence doesn't really match. And so which do you go with? Usually the answer is RCT, but perhaps in in your case, when there is uncertainty, maybe that's not always the case.
0: Mm -hmm. So shifting gears, let's talk a little bit about the project that you have ongoing, which uh, it sounds like it's grown. And uh, you actually wrote a recent uh, Issacoss blog post about it. And so why don't you introduce the project and then I'm sure I'll have some follow-up questions about, about it.
1: It's a good segue because we're talking about cohort studies and that's exactly what I'm trying to do with the women's soccer and basketball health study from head to toe. And I remember as a PhD student, my supervisor always said, uh, if you have a cohort, then you're set for life. And as epidemiologists, I think we see the Framingham Heart Study as this north star that we want to go. Uh, you know, we want to follow that north star. And we know about the Nurses' Health Study. These are kind of uh, legends in our field. And I've been, I've always remembered what my supervisor told me, but I'd never um, thought about having a cohort that I could follow for the rest of my career until I I hit this idea and it just kind of occurred to me one day out of the blue, after I found out about the NFL players study at Harvard Medical University. And they are following a cohort of retired NFL players throughout the the course of their retirement. And they focus also from head to toe. It's not just about their brain health after a, a lifetime of concussions really and being battered on the field. Um, And so I took that same model. I mean, they have $56 million uh, in terms of a grant from the Players Association. Uh, And so I I know women's sports, we, we don't work on that same scale, but I thought we could do something similar and start with a simple online survey that covers five health areas. And those health areas are physical, musculoskeletal, female athlete, neurocognitive, and mental health. So it's a A fairly short survey, I would say. I mean, the average time has been about 15 minutes to complete and we cover a lot of ground in those 15 minutes. And I have to say, uh, you're right that the study has grown and the feedback has been tremendous. And as a researcher, uh, certainly you're more senior and probably you get more feedback, but uh, a junior faculty like me, we publish and never know what happens to our research and how many people are actually reading it. And so just, Reading the comments from the survey, I can tell that there's a lot of gratitude and I'm grateful because we have not, we don't have external funding like 56 million to provide them with some sort of compensation for their time, Uh, but we've gotten a pretty good response. We're about 650 respondents so far. This is for the soccer portion alone. And we've recently since October expanded to basketball.
0: And so, Your criteria for for participation would be what for these women athletes?
1: They have to be retired and um, at the elite level. And so we define elite as college, uh, NCAA D1 through D3, uh, professional, and senior national team. And actually, based on some of the feedback we got early on, I decided to add semi-professional to being considered an elite athlete usually these are college players who play in a semi-professional league during the summer when they're out of school. And so based on some early feedback, uh, we expanded the uh, inclusion criteria. And then the basketball study stemmed from just knowing that they, they have a similar health profile. And also 2020 was not only the year of the pandemic, but also a lot of social unrest around the world and especially in New York City and women's basketball is is more diverse. And that was part of the motivation to add women's basketball players into the study as well.
0: Okay, and this is a global study, is that right? So athletes potentially from around the world could participate, is that right?
1: Yes, that's the intention of the study, given the popularity of soccer and basketball uh, on the women's side throughout the world. I I would like to expand globally and that requires some administrative Hoops to jump through first, just because of the data privacy regulations that vary across the world. So, a few more hoops to uh, jump through, but also looking for international collaborators who would like to carry out the study uh, in in their own countries, and that's where I hope ISSACOS can can help our study team.
0: Well, that's certainly a, a worthy worthy goal, and and certainly something ISSACOS should be supporting. And I'm glad that. Uh you've been able to write the blog, blog post and then we can have you here on the podcast to, to introduce the study. And as, what, what would that entail? What would an international, like a, let's say some, somebody's listening and wants to get involved, what would their responsibilities be in their home country?
1: I've been advised that it would require IRB approval, going through an academic center in, in, a, in another country. And so I would like to find um, a lead collaborator in a country who could take this study through their IRB just so that we're covered on on the grounds of the the privacy issues that may come up. And then I I think it it would be wise to start first with the English speaking countries, given that the survey as of now is only available in English, but certainly um, we would like to translate the, the survey and allow really all global women's soccer and basketball players to tell us about their health issues and issues that are important to them with the goal of protecting future women's soccer players, women's soccer and basketball players throughout the world.
0: So uh, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the term IRB, that's actually uh, a term used in the United States to describe ethics approval. And I know in different countries, they have different terms for that. But essentially when you're doing human subjects research, you need to protect the privacy and, uh, I guess, the the health autonomy of 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 people who participate. And so, each and each country has different rules of engagement for that sort of research. Uh, so it would really be a matter of of getting ethical approval for the project uh, in your home country. Uh, with the surveys that you're using, which are 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 they, uh, I guess, validated standardized surveys, or do you also have some parts of the survey that are Sorry, this is a very wonky, technical epidemiologist-type question, but uh, because I know a lot of validated surveys have often already been translated, so you might have some of that work done for you already.
1: That's exactly right. We start off with validated surveys, and really, these past five years, I've learned about which validated surveys are used in clinical practice, and also which ones are the shortest. So we use the shortest validated survey when possible, and we've been able to cover most of the health areas uh, with that principle except for female athlete health where there is no single validated survey and so that presents an opportunity for research right there in terms of coming up with surveys that address the main components of female athlete of the female athlete triad which is menstruation bone health and nutrition and and also the comments the comments, we're quantitative researchers, and we can be quite snobby about wanting numbers and quantitative analysis. But when I was going through the comments as the responses were trickling in, I just I just felt there was a richness there that a number couldn't capture. And so uh, right now we're working with a collaborator at NYU, New York University, to analyze that data because she's a qualitative researcher. Just because there's a lot of things there that should be um, made public, I think, through the literature.
0: That's a that's a great point, and I myself have started to get into some qualitative uh, evaluations as we're developing new surveys. One of the first steps, if you're starting from whole cloth, you're coming up with a new survey, you actually should be doing qual- qualitative interviews with uh, your research subjects before you try to write down questions. And because if you if you were to come up the questions on on your own, you would Essentially, be introducing your own bias to to the uh, the survey, and that's what we try to avoid with modern survey development. So, I can see how the work, this early work that you have, could actually lead to a validated uh, women's uh, health or sorry, female athlete uh, score of some sort, some some way to more quantitatively evaluate from the patient's perspective. Uh, the female triad. And I was interested to read in the blog post, you had mentioned that the triad seems to have now been extended. There are actually different aspects of women's health as as athletes that uh, hadn't been considered previously. Is that right? Mm
1: -hmm. The female athlete triad, a lot of clinicians are saying is not encompassing enough. And so it's expanded to red S, R E D S, dash S, which is kind of a um, composite health term for low energy availability. So when athletes... Are performing at such high levels, uh, often their nutrition nutritional needs are, are unmet, and so they cannot perform at such a high level. And then by not having that energy availability, then menstruation can suffer, the bone health can suffer. And this study is really looking at the long-term impact of all of those things combined to, again, always thinking about the next generation of players coming up as to hopefully they will have less health effects when they retire and we can protect all future athletes.
0: And the, so your, your study eligibility begins upon retirement and then how often do you follow the patients? How often are they asked to finish a follow-up survey?
1: We're only at the cross-sectional survey stage right now, but the goal is certainly to have follow-up surveys and studies. So now that we've got a baseline cohort My hope is to have prospective studies addressing all of these health areas. And I think with prospective studies, that's when the funding can come in and we can actually uh, provide some compensation for these athletes when they uh, spend the time and effort to to help our our needs. And the first thing now is um, we're kind of going the direction of remote assessments. So this study, because it's international and because we're living in a pandemic now, everything has to be pandemic proof And so uh, there's a collaborator at Boston University who has a remote hip assessment study going on. And I've been talking to her about perhaps using this cohort of soccer and basketball players as uh, participants, given that she can really just kind of assess the state of an athlete's hip through something like a Zoom meeting that we're having right now.
0: That's really interesting. And I can imagine as you've talked about funding clearly uh, is something that you need to focus on down the road, raising uh, research dollars to support this effort. But the uh, building the cohort is often one of the most difficult challenges is finding patients or finding subjects to to participate. Once you've got that cohort, you know in a sense you have a captive population and and then you can potentially do in-person evaluations, you could do blood draws, you could do imaging. there's all sorts of things that you could do. Uh, with this cohort, once it's identified, so I think it's a really fantastic idea, and and one that's long overdue uh, in understanding, especially these uh, female uh, athletes and soccer players, and the long-term effects of their sports. We know that there's long-term effects of of soccer participation in males, and it'll be really interesting to see how the female population uh, compares to that.
1: And there are precedents in orthopedic research. I think such. Studies as Moon and Mars, focusing on ACL, long-term ACL reconstruction outcomes, and also shoulder instability. Um, These are also precedents in our field that we try to emulate. But we are kind of in uncharted territory, focusing on female athletes. Uh, There's a gap in, in the research in terms of female participants that we're trying to address now.
0: And uh, so if people would like to get involved, if ISICOS members would like to get involved either as uh, participants in the study or uh, as collaborators, how can they reach you? What's the best way to to find you?
1: my my email is is a good way, but also uh, being in transition right now, perhaps uh, social media, we have a, a I have a personal email account. Certainly, you can get in touch with Issacoss and, and the, the message will come to me, but also our uh, study email is wosohealth at gmail.com. Woso is the abbreviation for women's soccer, W-O-S-O, health, uh, one word, at gmail.com.
0: Great. And it, do you have some social media activities?
1: Uh, I only have a personal account. I will say that due to data privacy, we did have a study social media account in the beginning, but we were told to uh, get rid of that account due to data privacy issues. And so we had to respect the rules of the game when it comes to IRB, the institutional review board. Uh, and so we had to comply.
0: OK. Uh, that- makes sense to me so i guess uh if folks are interested in getting involved please uh either reach out at wosohealth@gmail.com, at gmail.com or uh, you can contact isakos or feel free to reach out to me on social media i'm not on the irb uh <laughs> and i'm i'm at ortho epi on twitter uh and this has been a really enjoyable conversation is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off
1: I would like to thank Issacos for their support. Even just the blog post was nice to get out and put my thoughts together. And then now with this podcast, I think Issacos is kind of appealing to both the visual and audio learners and making research accessible to a greater audience, partic- particularly clinicians who may not have as much time to spend on research. And so uh, I appreciate them giving time to us full-time researchers like you and me, and hopefully we can collaborate with clinicians to solve some of the health problems that are out there, and there's no better time than now to to advertise what good research can do because the the implications are huge. At the end of the day, there's a lot of life and death things that we need to um, consider: COVID, orthopedic, or or anything else.
0: That's right. I think. Uh there's no time like the present for epidemiologists to get things moving uh and again we really appreciate you being on the Issacost podcast and i wish you well with both your project and your your future uh career path uh, it's always exciting as a as a little bit more senior researcher to talk to somebody from the younger generation who I can see you have made decisions and you're going down a path that I couldn't have imagined when I started my career. So uh, it's really, really rewarding to see that that the future generation will be carrying forward and that uh, that we will continue to hopefully stand on each other's shoulders and, and, and uh, continue to improve the health of athletes around the world. So again, thank you very much uh, for joining us.
1: I appreciate Stephen for opening the door to me and also for the mentorship over the years, and I I think we'll stay in touch through ISICOS and and other means because we're, we are a rare breed.
0: That's right yeah I do believe this is perhaps the first all epidemiologist ISICOS event of any kind in the history of the organization so. uh, This was fun and perhaps uh, once. The project has grown and, and you're ready to come on the show again. We'd love to hear how it's going and, and get an update and maybe encourage more people to get involved. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ling, for joining us today. And also thank you uh, to all of our listeners uh, from ISICOS or outside of ISICOS. We really appreciate you taking the time to stay involved and stay up to date on what we're doing within Issacos. And we'll be back with a new episode uh, in your feed in the near future. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.